This, week, this weekend has been so good for my soul. It's been really good to be here. I, I came to minister, but I always am ministered to, and I'm so thankful for the ability to go back home feeling rejuvenated and reminded of such important things. And, you know, a great job can be a terrible job depending on who you, you're working with. And uh, a lousy job can actually be pretty great depending on who you're working with. And a great job, like getting to minister like this, doing it with people like uh, Jason and Joel, and the worship team has just been amazing. And Rob and Kayla in the back, the sound folks and the video folks, have been amazing. I mean, you all know that nothing happens without them, and that's the most thankless job, because the only time anybody notices you is when something goes wrong. And sometimes in in sound and and, uh, video, you have no idea why something's going wrong. It's like a mystery. And so they, they've just done an amazing job. Even the weeks leading up, in months leading up, the work, working with them has been so great. And you need to know that sometimes when you work with people in ministry, who they are up front feels very different from who they are just when you're talking to them and when you're, you're hanging out. And it, I, I just... I'm so thankful for everybody I've been able to work with this weekend, and and what you see is what you get. I'm just so grateful for that. And you'll hear a little bit more later uh, from Josh about Likewise Worship, but I I love Hume, and I love Likewise's ministry, and I love that uh, they've been working together this weekend for the first time. I'm just so, so grateful. I'm not sure if this is Likewise's A-team. I have a feeling it may be, but... um, I know there are other incredible musicians as well, but I'm just so thankful for, for the, the privilege of serving with these folks this week and getting to know some of you and having good conversations. I'm, I'm so thankful. Well, there's no passage of Scripture that is more foundational for the way I view my life in ministry than Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29. So if you'd open your Bibles there. We're just going to spend a few minutes, very briefly, looking at Colossians 1, 28 and 29. It, it is an anchor for my ministry. I think of this, these, just these two verses, frequently throughout my days, right in the middle of preaching or teaching, I will be thinking about these verses. This is an incredible book, the book of Colossians. But these two verses have been incredibly weighty for me in formative and influential. Here's how Paul, the Apostle Paul, describes his ministry, what it's all about. And I hope you have what I would call a philosophy of ministry. I encourage you to sit down and get input and and seek the Lord on how to describe what your ministry is all about. It's amazing to me how we go about things with with great energy and effort and never stop and pause and say, what what are my goals? What are my means of getting to those goals? When do I know I'm being successful? We can have all sorts of faulty definitions of success, of of what is pleasing to the Lord. And so we've got to step back, and I encourage you to even write down, and even in different areas of your life, in worship ministry, in your relationships, in your church involvement and membership, in in those sorts of things, in a marriage someday, in in your dating relationships, have a perspective that informs the way you actually invest your time. But Paul says this, 
as an, an, a philosophy of ministry. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with His energy that He powerfully works within me. Can't think of a better way to summarize what ministry is all about. And we'll walk through the key elements of this. But one of the things I do to try to help me understand passages of Scripture is I'll write what I call my screw tape Bible version of this. Have any of you read the screw tape letters? Yeah, a few of you. I highly encourage you to read this. It's it's letters written from a senior demon to a junior demon written by C.S. Lewis, basically giving him advice on how to keep a young man away from God. And, And so it's great advice in the reverse, in other words which is a powerful way to communicate this. Lewis said it actually damaged his soul to spend all that time trying to think how Satan would think. But sometimes I'll, to understand a passage, write my screw tape Bible version of it. That if Satan wrote this passage, what would he say instead of what it actually says? And, and here's the screw tape Bible version I wrote of Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Here's the opposite of what God says. Eric, I proclaim... Telling ones I'm most comfortable with to live for today. And confusing them and leaving them in their ignorance. According to my own agenda and strategies so that they never have to endure the difficult process of becoming what God knows is best. For this, I only do what is convenient and what is in my self-centered job description depending entirely on my own wits, strength, and in the flesh, so that I will be glorified. I wrote a version for our church as well, and this could be Satan's version of Colossians 1, 28 and 29 for our group right now. Him we occasionally mention in passing, so as to not be boring or offensive or sound too religious or lack enough focus on ourselves or our latest trends. For this we work to be popular, cutting edge, and relevant so that people will feel good about themselves and content with their self-absorbed lives and maximize their unlimited potential. We will do this in the power of the flesh and in our own strength, which will be seen by our lives that are marked by prayerlessness, busyness, stress, materialism, shallowness, and chasing after more and more treasures of earth while we neglect the attainment of riches that truly matter and last forever. That's the reverse version. But what Paul says here is that we are focused on Christ. That's the first thing he says. Him we proclaim. Our ministries are all about Jesus. There has been Christ-centered singing and lyrics and worship all weekend. I've loved it. It's about Jesus. He is enough. Our lives are found in Christ We are satisfied in Christ. We find him not just satisfactory for everything we need, but sufficient and supreme in everything. And so we celebrate every day of our lives that are found in Christ. We celebrate the sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus. That's what the book of Colossians is about. He's our reason for being. 
He is sufficient. He is the king, the redeemer, the beloved son, the image of the living God. That's all what we find in Colossians. Paul says in Colossians, he's the firstborn of creation, the creator, the sustainer, the head of the church, the beginning, the alpha, the firstborn from the dead, preeminent. In him we find all the fullness of God himself. He's the reconciler, the peacemaker. The one in whom we find all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The one in, uh, in, in, who is in us and is our hope of glory. Colossians 3, 4 says, When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Our lives are about Jesus. When people ask what our lives are about, it should be obvious to everyone that it, our lives are about Jesus. Our ministries are about him. Not self-promotion, but Christ promotion and then he says him we proclaim that's a really important word Uh, the the greek words that we translate preach and proclaim are massively important for us and they're bold words they're confident words they're uh, they're sure words they're words we we shout from the rooftops and we are proclaimers of God's truth in the worship context, proclamation of the greatness of God, the beauty of Jesus, the goodness of God should be central for us. And it should be done with confidence. It should be done with boldness. Do you know the word love never appears in the book of Acts? Isn't that interesting? As the church is getting established and the apostles are preaching the gospel, the word love never appears. Now, That is not to diminish the importance of love in the Christian life. 1 John makes up for that all by itself. But it is perspective giving it, isn't it? That Jesus is proclaimed, highlighting his resurrection as the church is getting established in the book of Acts. And sometimes we get imbalanced in what we emphasize about God. And sometimes it can be about 95% love and grace and mercy and not sufficiently, holistically considering the character of God. And so we've got to do our best to proclaim everything about God that the Word says. So we need to be whole Bible Christians, whole Bible-saturated Christians and leaders so that our understanding of God is not imbalanced or warped, but holistic and comprehensive in our understanding of who God is. So our preaching needs to be confident and serious and bold and public. And it includes instruction and admonition. It's the good news of great joy. It should be done with joy and delight. We're not just exchanging ideas. We're not just sharing our faith. I'm writing a book right now called 20 Things Christians Should Probably Stop Saying. And and one of them is, I think, it's, it's a fine saying, but I think it's so imbalanced. We say we share our faith. And... There's actually one verse I think you can use to justify that. But overwhelmingly in the Bible, you know what we do with our faith? You know what evangelism is? You know what ministry is? It's proclamation of Christ. It's not sharing my faith. Because everybody has faith in something. It's not just sharing my faith. Although that's an element of what's happening, we're proclaiming Christ. We're declaring the greatness of God in Christ. That's what we're doing. It's not my faith I'm trying to transfer to other people. It's an understanding of who Jesus is. That's why John the Baptist says, I must increase and he must decrease. The focus is not on me and my faith and sharing it. Sharing is what I do with cookies. Proclamation is what I do with the gospel. 
And, and so we need to be bold and proclaim what we believe. We need to be up here, not being cool and appearing a bit apathetic. That's what I've loved about this team. They've been worshiping with us, right? Even though they're focused on doing their craft of their, their instrument well, they're actually good enough to not be so focused on their instrument that they can focus on God. It's a beautiful thing to get to that level. And I, I totally sympathize with musicians who just can't do both at the same time. They're just not at the point where they can worship and play well at the same time. And I get that. But hopefully deep down they're worshiping. But it's got to be proclamation. It's got to be confident. You, you, we, people need to see you leading them in worship and knowing you're worshiping. Knowing you're enjoying God in front of them. Knowing you believe the things you're saying. And you're in process of believing them more. But you're, you're preaching. You're proclaiming that we find eternal life in Jesus. And then he says, warning everyone. Warning. When you hear the word warning, you should think judgment day. That's what warning language in the Bible is about. It's about the coming judgment. We're warning people that judgment day is coming. The Bible says that it is appointed a man once to die and then to face the judgment. And it's amazing how little we hear of this in the contemporary, at least, American church. Judgment Day is what we're getting ready for. The Bible comforts God's people with the assurance and promise of the coming judgment. And godly people wonder why God's taking so long. But in the meantime, we warn people of the wrath to come. We're warning them. We're warning, reprimanding, rebuking, urgently calling people in their will and their emotions to get ready for the coming judgment. There's urgency, there's passion. Spurgeon said we are to preach as dying men to dying men. We're all dying. My friend I was telling you about who last week found out his wife had a terminal cancer diagnosis, she died last night. Carol died. She's with Jesus. And I, I'm just so grateful that as much as they're, they're just, uh, it's like a bomb went off in Mark and their 10 children's hearts. They have 10 children. Um, everyone named after a missionary. <laughs> but as much as they're devastated by this, they've been living their lives getting ready to see Jesus. And Mark was able to, to, to say this morning that my sweet Carol's with Jesus this morning. She's with Jesus. She's, she's where she's been getting ready to go. And we've got to get people ready to die. We've got to get people ready for the judgment. What we do should have a joyful exuberance to it. It, it it should have a delightful even at times playfulness to it but it's serious stuff that we do it's as serious as anything we'll ever do and then we warn but we teach we instruct we inform every time you lead a song you're teaching people to believe what that song says that's why be discerning about the songs you choose you know even if even if there's one stanza that's troublingly unbiblical. If you really step back and think about it, don't use it. Make sure you know the word and make sure what you're teaching people to sing is according to the scriptures. We're teaching people every time we lead, every time we worship, every time we sing. 
We're teaching and informing and instructing. There's a content basis for what we're doing. And as I've said already this weekend, yes, it, we've got to have our affections engaged, but we've got to have our minds engaged as well. Let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. I believe we're leaving here knowing God and understanding God more because of what we were singing this weekend and hopefully because of what we were preaching this weekend. But then it says we want to do this with all wisdom. We want to minister wisely. We don't just want to minister haphazardly. There's this idea that spontaneous is better than well-planned. There's this idea that spirit-led means you just shoot from the hip. I remember I was in chapel one time and this well-known preacher got up to preach and he said, you know, I had this sermon all ready to go, but on my way up here just now, I decided to talk about something entirely different. And I thought, oh, no. You know, that's supposed to be impressive. Like, I'm, I'm that spirit-led. And I suppose the spirit can work that way sometimes. But what's wrong with careful preparation? What's wrong with, with, with really knowing what you want to say and knowing what you're going to say is according to the scriptures when you get up and you're confident of that? We do it with all wisdom, with the right goals and means to those goals. And we do it again with judgment day in mind. We want to present everyone mature in Christ. Did you notice the everyone's? They're there in Greek. That, that we want to warn everyone and teach everyone and present everyone everyone we meet everyone we interact with everyone we just and even in passing have have an impact and I remember I was walking with a friend of mine and there was this little toddler in a baby carriage and just as we walked by I said hey buddy how you doing and I waved to him and he smiled and I walked away and my friend said hey Eric way to make a deposit into the bank account of that boy's belief in humanity He'll never remember that interaction. He'll never know who I am. But every interaction we have makes a deposit into someone's perception of people and of God and of what really matters. There are no just incidental, unimportant, passing interactions. Value everyone you meet as a creation in the image of God that you have the potential of ministering to. We, we want to present everyone we possibly can more mature in Christ, that means unbelievers coming to knowledge of Jesus and, and then believers coming to maturity in Christ that we're ar arriving at the telos, the goal of our existence, maturity in Christ. And we want to do this with everyone. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart. What a beautiful philosophy of ministry anchoring verse to, to think about when you think about being a worship leader. That we want to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly and that will enable us out of who we are and then in, in the exercise of our craft to do things in a way where we'll be presenting others mature in Christ. Where they'll fulfill their purpose better because we had an influence in their lives. But then he says, for this I toil. It's hard work, expected to be hard work. Don't be surprised when it's really hard. And the hardest part is not learning to, 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 to be a good musician, not learning the skills of these things. The hardest part, do you know what it is? Working with other people. That's the hardest part. Because we're sinners. And even though we, we, we know Jesus, even though we want to help people grow in Jesus, we're sinners and we bring all our stuff to the table. 
And there's been this term, worship wars. And there's, all, there, there's so often tension between the, the musicians and there's tension between the band and the tech people and there's tension between the pastor and the worship leader and there's tension between the worship leader and the musicians and there isn't a dwelling of the word of Christ richly in us and so we don't have relationships that actually display the love and presence of Christ so often. And so we need to commit to loving people in the midst of leading people. Starting with the people we work with. You know, the greatest challenges in ministry don't come from the pagans out there. They come from the people of God in here. So, so let's start being people who, as we said last night, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Put the, the other's needs in front of your own. Don't let competition and envy in self-centeredness and ugliness, tear at your relationships. Don't contribute to those things that may be there already, but you can have an influence. Don't complain. Don't whine. Don't, don't be part of the problem. Be part of the solution. Do the little things. Be willing to be a servant. Jesus says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, be somebody who washes feet. If you want to be great in my kingdom, be the servant of all. Follow my lead, he says, and be a servant-hearted leader. Laying down your life, whatever that means. You know, people say to me, you know, we've been going to this church for a year and we just don't know how to plug in. We're just not sure how to serve. And I'll look in the parking lot and I'll say, you just walk by a piece of trash on your way in. That's a good place to start. <laughs> you know, do you come with your job description of what it's going to look like? For you to serve based on your gifts or do you say, Lord, I want to serve. I want to meet needs. I want to love people because I got to tell you something. Your, your, your talent expressed because you've stewarded well is a wonderfully important thing. But who you are in your relationships with other people, in your willingness to be a servant to other people, to be a humble minister to other people, to care about them deeply, that'll be who you are in ministry. The, the world, the church doesn't need any more divas. One is too many. And we got way more than one. And so let's be like Jesus, who was the king of the universe. And he washed his disciples' stinking feet. Let's love with humility and joy, depending on the Spirit's work. It's hard work. Paul knew hard work. He was a tent maker. Don't think tent maker. You may think REI. Think tent maker, leather worker, more like almost a blacksmith who knew hard work. He knew gritty, sweaty work. And he said, that's what this is. It's toil. It's struggle. Don't expect it to be easy. Of course ministry's hard in a fallen world. Of course it is. But where's it all end? Oh, we depend on him. He's the one in the midst of our toil who's ultimately empowering us and working and bearing the fruit that we will see in our lives and our industry. We, we have spirit-enabled ministries and we've got to be seeking the spirit if our lives and our ministries are going to amount to anything of lasting value. It's all about Jesus. And that's what the Lord's Supper is. This communion of this bread and this cup is what we are partakers of as we remember Jesus. Jesus says, when you gather, take some bread and, and take some wine and ingest it and remember what I did for you. In some ways, this couldn't be more simple. 
most basic elements of our, our sustenance uh, are what we have before us. But they are these symbols of Jesus' body and blood that remind us that it is all about him. He, he is our savior. He is our substitute. He's our example. Jesus does this. The Apostle Paul remembers the words of the Lord Jesus and he says this, For this I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is for believers. This is for believers who aren't living in ongoing, unconfessed sin. This is for believers who are in the body of Christ meaningfully as we remember the body of Christ in this cup and this bread. The way we'll do it is you'll just come up and you'll take some bread and you'll take the cup and go back to your seat and then we'll all partake together. So as the Lord leads, come up and take the elements and then we'll take them all at once. Jesus said that he was never going to partake of this meal again until we do it with him together in glory. What an amazing thing that as we all look forward to that day, Jesus is waiting for himself to do it again. I just marvel at that, and I love that idea that one day all the saints, my friend Carol, the believers throughout the history of the church who have died and are awaiting the resurrection will one day partake of this together with Jesus and as we gather as God's people every time we gather we remember what he's done for us but we also think about what he will do when the dead in Christ will rise and we will join him in celebrating the great wedding banquet and so let's think about that and remember Jesus as we partake of this bread together And let's anticipate when we will partake of this cup together with our risen Savior one day as we take it together. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for Jesus. We're grateful that you loved us so much you sent your Son to take our place, to become one of us, to live a perfectly righteous life on our behalf, to die a perfectly sacrificial and sufficient death on our behalf, to rise victoriously and powerfully from the grave so that we could be raised with him. And we thank you that he ascended bodily with his humanity fully intact and 
He now sits at the right hand, ruling and reigning as our great high priest and advocate. And we're thankful that one day he'll return. He came the first time as a lamb. He'll come the next time as a judge. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. To the glory of God the Father. And so, Lord, I pray that our lives would be consumed with that day, that our lives and our ministries would be a trailer of coming attractions, that we would be showing the world that we're just getting a head start in the worship of Jesus that will exist for all of eternity. Lord, we thank you for this bread and this cup and what it reminds us of, and I pray that we would be people who are all about Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.